Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. My name is Isaac Lewis I'm an able-bodied man On the ship, the Royal Charter Bound off for Von Damien's land Oh, the sea that took six months to cross We could do in two So it's up that Mersey River, boys Out of Liverpool we flew and some of us were sailors, all hardies, young and old. And some of us were pioneers, bound off for the gold. There were merchants and musicians, Christian soldiers of the cross. We stared into that foamy sea, saw our dreams down in the broad. Sail on, sail on and on and on For my name is Isaac Lewis And this shall be my song Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one is titled... The Gold Wreck of Wales, and it tells the tragic story of the steam clipper Royal Charter and its passengers and crew when they were hit by a cyclone on the coast of Anglesey, Wales, in October of 1859, as she was returning to Liverpool loaded with gold from the minefields of Australia. It's a true story, and a sad one, as only a handful of the 482 passengers and crew survived, and most of them only due to the heroism of one of the passengers and the 28 men on land who formed a human chain to deliver the few survivors to shore in a cyclone, an act of heroism which we'll get to as our story unfolds. They had made the trip in record time, taking advantage of the ship's full sail capacity as well as her steam-powered engines, and they were within 20 meters of land when the ship broke up in huge waves that dashed it against the rock table shoreline. Had it come ashore just 200 meters to the east, it would have arrived on a sandy beach, but that wasn't to be the case. 
The Royal Charter was designated a steam clipper, and it was built at Sandycroft Ironworks on the River Dee in England and launched in 1855. She was a new design of ship, a 2,700-ton ironed hull steam clipper, which meant she had sails, auxiliary steam engines fired by coal, and a rolled iron hull that could withstand icebergs if necessary. She was 320 feet long. Her keel was 308 feet. She had three tall clipper masts and a single funnel, and for her engine, she carried 300 tons of coal. She was built to be used mainly as a passenger ship to deliver travelers from Liverpool to Australia and back, and she had cargo space as well to deliver goods. She could carry up to 600 passengers, and often did, featuring first-class accommodations to those who could afford it. First-class passenger fares cost about 75 guineas, second-class about 30 guineas, and third class varied between 16 and 20 guineas, probably depending upon how close to the engine room you were, not too different from today's cruise ships. The guinea was a coin of approximately one quarter ounce of gold that was minted in Great Britain between 1663 and 1814. It got its name from the country in Africa where most of the gold of that day was mined, a country which borders Sierra Leone on the west coast. The value of a guinea in 1859 was around what $5 is to us today. So a lowly bunk in steerage would have gone then for $100. These passengers, even the ones on a budget, were doing pretty well for their time, when most people didn't make that much in a month, and this was a two- to four-month trip, depending upon what ship you took. The 10,000-mile trip from Liverpool to Melbourne, Australia, via Cape Horn on the Royal Charter, took around 60 days, very fast by the standards of the day. On the 26th of August, 1859, the Royal Charter Steamship, furnished with auxiliary engines of 200 horsepower, steamed out of Hobson's Bay, Victoria, bound for Liverpool. She was equipped with her full complement of officers and crew, commanded by a Captain Taylor, who had gained an excellent reputation by his previous rapid and successful voyage, having accomplished the passage from Liverpool to Melbourne in 59 days, and who now, in charge of 400 passengers, many carrying gold on their persons, and a consignment of gold valued at half a million sterling, proudly looked forward to landing his precious freight of life and property in Liverpool. The ship proceeded from Port Phillip at Melbourne with no problems, rounding Cape Horn. The only incident being noted was a close passing of an iceberg. Among the crew was Matthew Scott, a seaman by trade, who had taken a break from his sea duties to dig for gold in Australia, and made his fortune, so he signed on with the crew of the Royal Charter for the trip back to England. He had cashed in his wealth for a check and was carrying it in a waterproof belt around his waist. Another man named James Dean, a prudent laborer from Wigan, a passenger, had converted his gold to an English check as well and carried it in a waterproof pouch. Sarah Ann Foster was returning to Manchester to her husband and her duties running the Shakespeare Hotel on Fountain Street in Manchester. She had gone to Australia to handle the sale of two hotels her husband owned there while he was away on other business. They had gone to Australia to cash in on the gold strike at Ballarat, which was 65 miles from Melbourne. And with thousands of wealth seekers arriving to that area, a hotel seemed like a good investment. And it was. The newspapers had hailed Ballarat as the richest strike in the world, where a pick, quote, might strike a 2,000-ounce nugget, end quote. That had people coming in from everywhere. Sarah and her husband traveled salon class, yes, first class, 
and was carrying with her four to five thousand dollars in gold at the 1859 value. Before leaving Australia, 15-year-old crewman Charles Thomas had written home, Mother, pray for a fair breeze, and I shall whistle for the wind. He would get his wind. Then there was James Russell, returning to Scotland with his wife and two daughters on board, and Piping Judd, the sweeper, who entertained passengers with his tin whistle. An 80-year-old woman, later listed as found, no name, whose survivors said had lost her husband when he was shot and killed at Ballarat. There was Chief Officer Stevens, who had already survived two wrecks and the Crimean War. His sister was traveling with him and was married the day the Royal Charter was founded. There were a few Maltese seamen on board, these men known to be first-class sailors, one of whom carried two names, one his Maltese name, Rougier, and his anglicized name, Joseph Rogers. There was 17-year-old Jane Fowler, returning to England with her mother and father and younger sister Ida, who was five years old, and John Judge, a big Irishman in second class. There were two Lewis brothers, John, the ship's purser, and the younger Isaac, listed as a seaman, both from Melfry, where ironically the gale would drive them. In years to come, Isaac would be memorialized in a song by music artist Tom Russell. There was William Foster, a ship carpenter, who by the captain's orders would soon be cutting away the mast in a desperate attempt to regain control of the ship. Anthony Belt, a seasoned seaman, one of three brothers in Australia who had drawn lots to return home to Newcastle to comfort their parents over the loss of another brother, a man listed as Mr. Barrett, who was a painter, whose wife was waiting for him to return from Australia, and Ms. Waring, among so many others, each of whom had a story. She was listed as a stewardess and spent most of her time tending to those in need of care, always with a cheerful disposition. She was a favorite of Piping Judd, whom she had nursed back to health after his fall from a yardarm during the previous voyage. On the 24th of October, the Royal Charter lay at anchor about 20 miles off Ireland's Cove of Cork, and the crew and passengers were excited to be nearing the end of their voyage. Fourteen of the listed 390 passengers climbed aboard the pilot boat Petrel to head for Queenstown, their voyage being over. One passenger, name unknown, was waving goodbyes from the ship to them and suddenly decided to join them, a quirk of fate that probably saved his or her life. In the late afternoon of the 25th, the ship was sailing on calm seas toward Anglesey when a thin black haze was spotted coming over the mountains from the south. Those who saw it had no idea it was the outlier of the approaching horizontal cyclone that was busy sinking ships and killing scores just hours south of them. To their southwest, it had been swept and devastated, ships driven ashore, stone embankments battered to pieces, and trees torn down or sent whirling across a hail-swept landscape. It was a day and night of hell for Britain. On Snowdon, Huge rocks were sent bounding down the slopes like pebbles. John Jones, assistant keeper at South Stack Lighthouse, was struck in the head by a flying stone as he tried to make his way across the bridge there, and killed. There was no safe harbor. Night approached the Royal Charter. The wind, which had been freshening in the earlier part of the day, now burst with uncontrollable fury over the ship. The captain signaled for a pilot off the Scaries by firing rockets and also went off Point Linus, but he was forced to proceed without one,
because the seas had turned so bad, so fast, that the pilot boats wouldn't venture out. By nightfall, the storm struck in full, and immediately whipped up mountainous seas, sending the huge ship pitching and rolling. It was now 11 o'clock p.m., and the vessel was becoming unmanageable. The captain made an attempt to stay the ship by bracing the yards the other way and squaring them, but she resisted all efforts. The port anchor was let go, and 100 fathoms of chain cable paid out. Shortly after, the starboard anchor was rolled out, and 70 fathom of chain, and these succeeded in checking the vessel until 1.30 a.m., at which point the port chain snapped. About an hour later, the starboard chain broke, and immediately after that, the vessel grounded. What no one knew quite yet in the last hour before dawn, but would find out quickly, was that the ship was hanging perilously on a sandbank a little more than 20 meters, that's a little over 60 yards, from land. As dawn appeared, the locals who were fast gathering on land could see the desperate passengers and crew who had made it on deck and were shouting for help and two men were trying to lower a lifeboat, which, in the pitching seas, flipped them out and then crashed down upon their heads. It was a scene of chaos. Seaman Edward Wilson later would describe the terrible confusion of the scene on deck as the rain and wind lashed the helpless passengers. Fathers and mothers clasping their children in their arms, wives clinging to husbands, shrieking and crying, Save me! Save me! Don't leave me! And so on. At the same time, just beyond the cliff-top, Thomas Hughes and Mesack Williams were working at securing the roof of the latter's cottage, which was threatened by the winds. The dawning light revealed to them the drama developing off the coast. Hughes ran to the village to raise the alarm, while Williams watched helplessly from the cliff-top. On board the ship, plans were made to try to rescue the passengers and crews. It was decided to try to get a rope ashore from the ship, which could then be used, along with a bosun's chair, to bring people to safety. A Maltese seaman, Goose Rougier, also known as Joe Rogers, volunteered to take on the dangerous task. George Suicar, another Malta-born seaman, and Chief Engineer Stevens, having also volunteered to swim ashore. Upon seeing their friend Rogers drop over the side and head toward the rocks, made eight attempts to throw a second line to shore, all unsuccessful due to the high winds and rain. A strong swimmer, Rogers declined the offer of a life belt, tied the rope around his waist, crawled out on the boom at the bow, and dove clear of the ship into the water. Struggling against the waves, he eventually made it to the rocks, up which he climbed, fighting to keep hold with his bare feet and hands as waves pounded him into and then tried to pull him away from, the rock wall. Somehow, using incredible determination, he was able to tie the line to a rock above him, and then swim back toward the ship. Again he brought back a second line, with which the ship's crew could connect a canvas bosun's chair, and the process of transporting passengers one by one began, assisted by 28 brave Melfry residents who formed a human chain on the landward end, extending toward the ship. However, at this time, the tide was rising and was lifting the ship off the sandbank. Soon, the waves threw it clear of the sandbank and onto the adjacent rocks. And at that point, the ship broke in two, and the fate of most of the passengers was then sealed. The women and children had been gathered in the center of the ship below decks, 
out of the reach of the gale winds. When the ship broke in half, the ship collapsed upon them. None were to survive. Those men and women who did not drown when thrown into the heavy sea were battered to death on the rocks just feet away from safety. Few made it to shore. As the gale raged, young Isaac Lewis waited his turn to take the hawser to shore. He could see his father, who lived in Melfry, standing on a rock, and they waved to each other and shouted, with most of the words being whipped away by the wind. Newspaper accounts report that he had shouted with grief, Oh, Father, I have come home only to die. A witness later said Lewis made it to shore, only to be swept away by another wave before his father could reach him. His body washed ashore the next day, not far from his father's house. His brother John also perished, leaving behind a wife and two children. Anthony Belt, the seaman who had drawn the lot to come home, didn't make it. Nor did Piper Judd, or Ms. Waring, or Mr. Barrett, the painter, whose wife desperately searched for him among the bodies piled up on the beach, until she found his waistcoat hanging on the door of the tent that had been erected by the Coast Guard on the beach, whereupon she cried, Oh no, oh no, my husband, God looked down on me. There were terrible scenes on the beach that morning, one of them being James Russell, as he desperately wandered the beach like a madman looking for his wife and daughters. He did find the limp body of his oldest daughter and carried her up the shore to Melfry. John Foster, upon hearing of the wreck, arrived at Melfry hoping to find his wife Sarah, but her body was not recovered until four weeks and three days later at Portaferry, County Down, and was brought back to Stockport. The Stockport advisor reported that the coast and fields above the cliffs at Melfry were strewn with fragments of the cargo and of the bedding and clothing. Worse still, the rocks were covered with the corpses of men and women frightfully mutilated. The Morning Chronicle reported, The shore and rocks were strewn with sovereigns which the passengers had vainly attempted to save with themselves. James Dean, the laborer from Wigan, with his waterproof money belt, was one of the few survivors. The huge Irishman, John Judge, was in the forecastle when the ship broke in half and clung to a part of the ship with three other men as a series of waves broke over the ship, and while people watched and screamed from shore at the drama unfolding before them, held on as one by one the other three men were swept away by the huge waves, until only he was visible clinging to his perch. Suddenly a huge wave appeared behind him, and swept him up high above the ship's frame, engulfing him as it came smashing down closer to shore. Somehow, and only with what witnesses could describe as Herculean strength, he managed to catch a spar and make his way to shore and survive. Only around 40 of the roughly 490 passengers and crew survived. All the women and children aboard perished. While the line was being prepared in the rescue attempt, a number of women and children waiting to be taken off were swept overboard by a huge wave so the rest were told to remain below deck until the bosun's chair was fully operational. But the ship broke up before they had their chance of rescue. News spread around Anglesey quickly, and many people descended on the site, hearing rumors of treasure. Also on the scene was Mr. W. H. Smith, customs house agent for Beaumaris. He was to act as receiver of the wreck to ensure that all property thrown up by the wreck was treated according to law. Any gold that was found on shore was to be brought to him, 
and the finder was given a receipt for it. However, he was only one man to keep watch over the activities, and many gold ingots disappeared into pockets. Later, salvage operations brought up most of the gold from the seabed, but some continued to be washed up around the coast for many years, and even today scuba divers still find some. One witness to the beginning of those salvage operations was Charles Dickens, who arrived weeks after the tragedy and recorded everything he saw in one chapter of his book, The Uncommercial Traveler, which is over at our other podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and it's available now. Also given up by the sea over the next few weeks were the bodies of the perished. Many were soon recovered near the wreck and taken to the local church of Lanalgo. The rector, Reverend Stephen Roos Hughes, took charge of the dead, 140 of whom now lie in that churchyard. Other churchyards in the area house similar counts. He also wrote hundreds of letters to relatives of the dead and comforted the bereaved. It took a terrible toll on the gentle man, and he died within three years, aged 47. He, too, lies in the churchyard. Many bodies were carried along the coast and washed up in other parishes. The neighboring parish of Penrose Ligui was served by Reverend Hugh Hughes, brother of Reverend Stephen Roos Hughes. Forty-five victims lie there. On the other side of Melfry, 65 bodies washed ashore in a sheltered cove in Lonegrad Parish. Some were carried as far as Red Wharf Bay and are buried in Pentraeth and Landonia. The sinking of a ship full of gold with huge loss of life was bound to attract attention around the world. Reporters rapidly made their way to Anglesey. The more sensationalist part of the press ran stories of local villagers plundering the bodies of the dead. The Daily Telegraph called for the death penalty for the greedy Cambro British thieves. The people of Melfry were outraged at these accusations. The 28 men who had struggled to save those on the ship banded together to write a letter in response, saying that, if it were not for them, there would have been even fewer survivors. The Royal Charter was not the only ship to come to tragedy that night. The hurricane blasted its way north from the English Channel, across southwest England, and on through Wales, and then up to Scotland. Over 133 ships were completely lost, and another 90 severely damaged. The total loss of life was over 800 souls. The scale of the tragedy prompted efforts into improving weather forecasting and storm warnings. The Meteorological Office had been founded just five years previously, and it was under the charge of Robert Fitzroy, who previously had been the captain of the HMS Beagle, on which Charles Darwin took his famous journey that led to the development of the theory of natural selection. He developed methods of compiling charts to forecast the weather, a phrase he coined, set up a system of observation stations linked by telegraph, and introduced gale warnings and newspaper weather reports. A large quantity of gold was said to have been thrown up on the beach at Port Ailerth, with some families becoming rich overnight. The gold bullion being carried as cargo was insured for 322,000 pounds, but the total value of the gold on the ship must have been much higher, as many of the passengers had considerable sums in gold, either on their bodies or deposited in the ship's strong room. Many of the bodies recovered from the sea were buried nearby at St. Galgo's Church, Lanalgo, where the graves and a memorial can still be seen. There is also a memorial on the cliff above the rocks where the ship struck, which is on the Anglesey Coastal Path. The wreck was extensively salvaged by Victorians shortly after the disaster. The remains today lie close inshore in less than five meters of water as a series of iron bulkheads 
plates, and ribs, which have become covered and uncovered by the shifting sands from year to year. Gold sovereigns, pistols, spectacles, and other personal items have been found by scuba divers by chance over the years. Teams have airlifted, water dredged, and metal detected for other treasure, and are still doing so today. Vincent Thurkettle, a prospector from Norfolk, England, found in 2012 what is Britain's biggest gold nugget while scouring the waters just off Anglesey. Pictures are available online with a simple search. He kept his find secret until early May of 2016, as he and his friends continued to search for other debris from the Royal Charter. He found the nugget in water about 5 meters deep, about 5 meters from the shore. The nugget was about 40 meters from the site of Royal Charter's wreck, so Thurkettle had to notify the receiver of the wreck, who took possession of it on behalf of the Crown. Recent storms had exposed seabed that had lain under 2 meters of sand. In a July 2011 article for the UK Telegraph, Jasper Copping related, Thurkettle's treasure has yet to be valued, and the team has declined to say how big their haul is. However, the value, particularly of the coins, will be inflated because of where they were found. Mr. Thurkettle said, To have a coin from the Royal Charter will probably be worth double or treble what it would otherwise be worth. His team of about 12 divers and gold planners have been visiting the wreck for the past seven summers but only now have they agreed to reveal details. They estimate there's another two years' worth of exploring left. The wreck lies just off the village of Melfry, on Anglesey's east coast, in clay, beneath about 15 feet of water, and sand. To search for gold, the team has to blow away the top sand. They then use a machine to suck up sand and clay to be sifted for gold fragments. Mr. Thurkettle has been to Melbourne to find out how much gold was on board. He said, You find yourself getting absorbed in the story. These people were coming home having struck gold and were only two to three hours away from Liverpool. And yet they go from such hope to such disaster, yards from safety. The tale of the ship's loss gripped Victorian Britain. The storm was one of the worst of the 19th century and became known as the Royal Charter Gale. At least 79,000 ounces of gold were on the boat worth $77.6 million today. And that's the amount that was carried in cargo. It doesn't include gold carried by the passengers. Soldiers and Coast Guard salvaged some before many of the bodies had been recovered. About 80% of the haul was recovered, leaving the tantalizing prospect that, even after the latest find, millions of pounds worth of gold remain on the seabed. Well, that about wraps it up for today's story. You know, it's one of those stories that you don't hear about very often. I had never heard of it before. It would make a great movie with all the characters, with the drama, with the sadness of the people being so close to home and yet never making it. There's a lot of elements to this story that make it a tremendous human drama. It's the kind of little-known story that we really like to find at 1001 Heroes, and we hope very much that you enjoyed it. The song Isaac Lewis that you heard at the beginning of this podcast is provided by well-known singer-songwriter Tom Russell from his album Modern Art. And Tom has graciously given us the okay to use his song to tell the story of the wreck of the Royal Charter through the eyes of one of its passengers, young Isaac Lewis, whose tragic story you just heard. Tom can tell a story through his songs like few others can, and we hope to be able to work with him again soon with some upcoming stories. His song is heard in its entirety here, and you can find a link to his albums at Amazon in our show notes. My name is Isaac Lewis. 
I'm an able-bodied man On the ship, the royal charter Bound off for Von Damien's land Oh, the sea that took six months to cross We could do in two So it's up that Mersey River, boys Out of Liverpool we flew And some of us were sailors All hardies, young and old And some of us were pioneers Bound off for the gold There were merchants and musicians Christian soldiers of the cross We stared into that foamy sea Saw our dreams down in the broth Sail on Sail on and on and on For my name is Isaac Lewis And this shall be my song So we landed there in Botany Bay And the boys went on the town And I met a girl named Emma Gray I loved her up and down And I swore that I'd return for her One more tour of sea But I had to tell my father What he meant to me For every night I dreamed a dream As the wind swept through the sails That I was in my father's house Back in northern Wales And he reached out for my father I said, I love you very much But the ship rolled o'er And the dream was drowned Before we got to touch Sail on Sail on and on and on My name is Isaac Lewis And this shall be my song So I kissed the lips of Emma Gray and said, sail for Liverpool. And the parrots perched in the riggins, boys, dolphins swam in schools. And our trip, it was a pleasant one till we reached the coast of Wales. One day out from Liverpool, God unleashed the gale. Good Lord, I've seen some squalls, me boys, hurricanes at sea. And many nights I'd rediscovered faith on bended knee. But I've never seen it blow so hard, we anchored her at last. But the waves rolled o'er the top of us, we had to cut the masts. And all the mining magnets clutched their gold Believing they'd be saved But their bloody greed destroyed them first Beneath the angry waves All the women and the children lost To eternity A man has tamed and shaped the land But he'll never tame the sea 
And every night I had dreamed a dream as the wind swept through the sails That I was in my father's house back in northern ways And I reached out for my father, I said I love you very much But the ship rolled o'er and the dream was drowned before we got to touch Sail on Sail on and on and on My name is Isaac Lewis This shall be my song We were caught upon the rocks Ten yards from the shore And we saw men standing on the rocks Maybe three or more and I swear I saw my father waving at me through the squall. And I screamed that I was coming home. That's all that I recall. For the waves, they swept me overboard with broken masts and sails. And I drowned where as a child I'd fished on the rocks of northern waves. And in three days' time I washed upon the white and sandy shore One hundred yards from Moulfree in my father's white oak door Sail on Sail on and on and on My name is Isaac Lewis This shall be my song and some will cry coincidence or say it can't be true. I only say just tell your loved ones what they mean to you. For ye may sail the sea of life pursuing golden schemes, yet drown so closely to your home the cradle of your dreams. Sail on, sail on and on and on. My name is Isaac Lewis. This has been my song. My name is Isaac Lewis. And this shall be my song. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We'll return with another episode right after I buy some scuba gear and book a flight to Wales. Research tells us that you listeners are very knowledgeable when it comes to history and that you enjoy a good story. 1001 Heroes is found everywhere good podcasts are found. For those of you who want to listen online, go to 1001storiespodcast.com. We also post at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes, and we Twitter at 1001podcast. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.